So if you grew up a child of the 80s, there's a singer that you've probably heard of, Phil Collins. Anybody remember Phil Collins, the band Genesis? I mean, there's some people clapping out there. <laughs> what I didn't realize is that Phil Collins may very well have been prophetic in one of the songs that he wrote. You may remember a song called Land of Confusion. And in that song, in the opening lyrics, it says this, I must have dreamed a thousand dreams, been haunted by a million screams. But I can hear the marching feet, they're moving into the street. Now, did you read the news today? They say the danger's gone away. But I can see the fires still alight, burning into the night. There's too many men, too many people, making too many problems and not much love to go around. Can't you see this is a land of confusion? Being confused and being disoriented can be a terrifying place to be. And yet so often it's exactly where we may find ourselves, even on a national level, even perhaps a global level. You may have watched the value system that you've held for a long time. It's been very near and dear to you. One that you thought you shared with those around you slowly start to change, be upended, and turn around. On a personal level, you may be living in a time or land of confusion. If you're in a place where you're between two things and you don't know which way it's going to go. Maybe you have lived your life to the best of your ability by the scriptures. And what for the life of you, you cannot understand is why aren't things turning out the way I had hoped, the way I thought they should be, the way I believed that God was going to make my life and things are just not looking that way. Welcome to the land of confusion. And what I want to talk about this morning is how do I trust God in confusing times? How do I trust God in confusing times? And this morning I want to step back into the story of David. Because David, if he is anywhere right now, he is in the land of confusion. Remember, just as a shepherd boy, very young, probably in his early teens, he was taken out away from the sheep and he was brought before a prophet named Samuel and Samuel said you David are going to be the next king and he took a horn full of oil and poured it on his head and David no doubt confused about what was happening just went right back to shepherding after that and now he's probably about the age of 20 and after being introduced to the king's courts Saul's court he's now finding himself running for his life from a mad king. And we step into the story of David, a brilliant military strategist at this time. He's already killed a giant. He's on the run with some men seeking refuge from this mad king. And that's where we step into the text today. And this morning we'll be in both chapters uh, 21 and 22 of 1 Samuel. I'm going to start out reading the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. We'll start with verses 1 through 7. If you would please stand with me. For the reading of God's word, 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? 
And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. You may be seated. So we're continuing marching along through the book of 1 Samuel. We're walking with David through a narrative of Scripture, events being depicted and described so that we have some idea of what it looks like when the prophecy and the will of God is being played out. Again, try to get into the shoes of this young man, David, who was told he'd be king, but he has absolutely no clue how this whole thing is going to work out. And the people of Israel are going to be struggling with who to put their faith in during a time of weirdness and kind of upheaval. So we walk into this unfolding narrative. Last week we saw the loyal covenant friendship between Jonathan and David, this chesed kind of relationship. It's like what God has for us. And then tearfully, David had to leave his best friend, Jonathan, and now he's on the lamb, so to speak. He's on the run from this mad king. And this morning, I want to take a look at what transpires as David is on the run. We have a man who, like us, is experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him at that moment that he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. And he's growing up in the faith. And he's having to make decisions. And he's having to do hard things when, when the world seems very unclear to him. And while running for his life, he's having to trust God in ways that he has not had to do before. And this is how we can also learn about trusting God when things around us don't make sense and seem confusing. So I want to go through the text this way this morning. First, we'll talk about trusting God's faithfulness as we see it extended to his people. We'll also see that we can trust God's fulfillment of prophecy. What he says is going to happen is going to happen. And then finally, we'll talk about our response to the faithfulness of God. Three responses to the faithfulness of God. And first of all, we see God's faithfulness to his people. God has spoken to David through the prophet Samuel. David's going to be king, and God's going to know what his needs are. Now, we have this strange opening to this story. David is, he's lying. He's lying to this priest, for crying out loud, about his mission. He says he's on a secret mission, going to be meeting up with some people. Well, no, he's not. But yet, even as he is telling lies, navigating through this God is still graciously working out his plan. 
in and through David. So he's on the run. In the past, he's sought the help of priests. And this one priest named Ahimelech, by the way, an important fact about this man, he's a descendant of Eli. Uh, tuck that away somewhere. We'll talk about that more towards the end. He's a descendant of that high priest Eli that had two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that we talked about. Um, it's actually been a few months now. But we see that he shows up, he's alone in the presence of the priest. He's got men traveling with him. Evidently, they're stationed off away somewhere. He comes by himself now before this priest. The priest is trembling. He's terrified. He's probably heard that Saul's hunting David. He also knows David's a man of prominence now. He's had military victories. <clears throat> so he's wondering, well, well, what are you doing here? Well, he's hungry. He comes in. He's like, look, I need something to eat. And the priest said, well, we've really got, only got one kind of food available right now. It's called the bread of presence. And inside the temple, there were these stacks of bread that were put there as a symbol to show that God is always present in communion with his people. And there was one loaf there for each tribe of Israel put in these stacks. Well, it wasn't really just there for the eating of anybody who happened by. Every Sabbath they would switch out the bread, but the only people that could eat it were the priests. Now, this is an important moment. Because, in a sense, David is going to be breaking the law and the priest along with them. But this is what's interesting. You see, David gets the character of God, I believe, in ways that most of the people don't at this time. And the purpose of the law... And David understood this was to show the love of God. He was trying to keep them from screwing up their lives, and he gave them the law to follow because he loved them. But see, David understands that the supreme law of God is to love others and to love life. And that if you were following that law, really the other laws would fall into place. And that's what's going on here. As a matter of fact, Christ, when he's confronting the Pharisees, is going to use this instance of David eating this bread to show them, look, you all know it was okay for David to eat that bread. He was technically breaking the law, but there was this higher law to preserve and love life. As a matter of fact, we live this out. We, in our hearts, we know this to be true because even in America now, there's laws against breaking and entering into someone's home. However, if you're driving, driving past a house, you see it's on fire. You decide to stop and look in one of the windows, and you see someone passed out on the floor, and the flames are encroaching on them. You would probably break in. You'd take that person out and get them to safety. Well, why is that? Because there is this higher law of loving life. It'd be the same way if, you, if your child was playing on the monkey bars at recess, and there was a they decided to do a handstand on a 20-foot high piece of equipment. They fell off, and they hit the ground, and they busted their head. Well, you would grab that child. You would put, it, put them in the car, and you would not be concerned about the speed limits. As a matter of fact, if other people knew what was going on, they would probably get out of the way to let you go by even faster. Why is that? Because God has inherently given life intrinsic value and david gets this he's teaching david and he's teaching the men of david about the value of life even as david you know he screwed up right he lied he fibbed he 
He did what he did, but still in that, God is graciously teaching him about himself. And while David was there in Nob with these priests, it said there was another guy there, Doeg the Edomite. Now, this is actually a spy of Saul's. When David spots him, he knows it's time to go. He recognizes, I believe, who this guy is. And he's probably going to go somewhere that Saul won't suspect. He needs to get out of Dodge. So he goes to Gath. And just before leaving the priests, he says, look, I need a weapon. They give him the sword of Goliath. Now, Gath is interesting because this is the hometown of Goliath. So he's about to go sort of traipsing into the land of Gath. He's carrying the sword of the giant that he killed, Goliath. Why did he go there? It's a good question. There's lots of ink that's been spilled on his reasons. It's really hard to say why David would do this. But he goes straight to Gath, goes to the king, the home of Goliath. And this is what he does, picking up at chapter 21, verse 10. And David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. It's very interesting. Remember, he had the faith to kill Goliath, but now he's afraid of the king. Again, I think this is the graciousness of God coming out. He's working through hard times. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. What? You see, we're, we're seeing this humanity of David coming out. Now, this is actually quite ingenious of David. See, the people at that time thought an insane person was actually like a, har a harbinger or a, a portent from the gods, and you wouldn't disturb that person because something bad might happen to you. They would typically treat these people well. As a matter of fact, sometimes they'd even make them leaders. But he wanted refuge for his... Hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go back. Yes, this was ingenious. It was bad luck to kill a madman in the ancient Near East. So he gets out. As a matter of fact, the king says, let's get him out of here. We've got enough madmen the way it is. Get him out. Don't want trouble from this event. So then what does he do? He sought refuge with the priests. He sought refuge here in this land of glass. And now he goes to a cave, a cave in a place called Adullam. And picking up in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. It seems like the events just keep getting stranger. For some reason, I can almost hear God laughing at everything that's going on in the life of David. And what he's attempting to do. And the way he's trying to take charge and control. But God is still blessing him. And I take great heart, actually, that David, who even acted deceptively at times, is still feeling the hand of God on his life. And where he's going, what he's doing. He escaped that scary situation in Gath. He's in a miserable cave. 
And his family is coming to him. And he gets concerned about them. So now he's going to leave the, the cave. He's actually going to take his family to the land of Moab. Now this is where his great-grandmother Ruth was from. And perhaps he was thinking, well, I've got some family roots there. I'll take my family back there because no doubt any association with me is going to be unsafe for anybody because I'm being hunted down by the king. It's comforting to me that God works through choices that may at the time feel right, sometimes in hindsight they look wrong, but God is still able to work through the choices that you and I make on a daily basis, even sometimes if we do it for the wrong reasons. It doesn't nullify the work of God in our life. I remember being terrified that I would like take a misstep and pick the wrong job and it would ruin my life. It'd take me to the wrong town. I wouldn't meet the one person God has for me because I'd get off track somehow. That, that is not a concern that God would have us to have. Look at the way he's working through these, these choices. He loves us. He doesn't abandon us. He knows that we've got to make choices. And I love this picture of God's grace letting David struggle through this miserable time of confusion. And yet, all through it, he is being 100% faithful to his people. You know, through this struggle, through this time of running, David wrote the Psalms, several Psalms. For example, the, the one I read this morning at the opening was a, a Psalm that David had written when he was exiled to the land of Judah. Another Psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm chapter 18 starting with the title of the psalm down to verse 3. It says to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. By shield... And the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So he's journaling as he's going. He's writing down the truth of God as he's discovering it through a difficult time and hardship. So we, the Christians, God's people, we can trust God that he will be faithful, even when it feels like we are in the middle of of absolute confusion, God's hand is still there. He's still working, just like he did for David. He's doing it for us. Perhaps even all the more so because we're on this side of the resurrection. So trust God's faithfulness to his people. And we can also trust that God fulfills his own word, that he fulfills his prophecies. Things start getting really grisly in chapter 22, and we see how far gone Saul is. When we get to verse 6, we read that Saul, he's, it says he's sitting under this tamarisk tree. Now, if you don't know what a tamarisk tree is, uh, back east we'd say it looks like a dogwood. You know, it's a big flowery tree that provides some shade. And Saul was just sitting under this tree, and he's hearing about David coming back. He's been discovered. So he gets all his servants together, and he says to them, Saul said to his servants standing around him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. That's the tribe that he's, Saul's from. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you 
fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait. Is that this day? Now imagine yourself being summoned to the king and hearing a speech like this with accusations as he's got a spear in his hand. And he's saying, looking back at chapter 20, my own son, Jonathan, helped David get away from me. And you all, you conspired against me in this. And then there's Doeg the Edomite. Remember him? Not a descendant of Jacob. He's a descendant of Esau. That's who the Edomites were. It was Abraham, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob, Esau. Esau was the one that did not follow the Lord. Esau was the one, it says in the text, that God actually hated. And now we have Doeg there. And he's going to rat out Ahimelech, the high priest, for helping David. Remember, he was present. Saul rounds up all the priests and all of Ahimelech's father's family. Then down in verse 18, it says, Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. This is very interesting. Because it fulfills a prophecy way back in chapter 3, verse 14. The prophet Eli, actually Samuel had been brought to Eli. And he had blasphemous sons. So God was going to punish the lineage of Eli. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 3, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli, this is Samuel speaking to Eli, the one who trained him, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. God says, I'm going to wipe out your line. And here he does it. He does it by the hand of this mad king. This is prophecy coming around. Even Saul, who's fallen out with God, is going to unwillingly be doing the will of God. And so it is that the plans of God on earth will be played out. It's going to happen. What God says is going to come true will come true. Christ will return. Now Saul himself knows he's going to lose the throne. His kids already know it. Jonathan that would have had the throne, he knows it's going to happen. He's accepted it. And yet Saul is making himself godlike. He's ignoring the word of God. He's terrifyingly and anxiously trying to hang on to power. And then he annihilates an entire town for aiding and abetting this arch nemesis he has. David. Now look again at verse 19. It says, And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, man, woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. Everyone is annihilated. The animals are annihilated. Now try to think back for a moment. Where was it that Saul really screwed up? He started going off track when he was unwilling to obey what God had told him when he said, I want you to wipe out the enemy of Israel, Amalek, because if you don't, there'll be a continued thorn in the side of Israel. So looking back, that's in chapter 15, verse 3. 
It says, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Do you see the similarity between these two verses? And there's an important point that this, this writer is making in that Saul, when it is self-serving, will do a command that he was unwilling to do for the Lord. He wasn't willing to wipe out everybody and every animal before. But all of a sudden, when it's self-serving, he is. He disobeyed God then, but now that it's about him, he'll carry out a similar command. See, that's the difference between him and David. Two people on very different tracks. One trusting God and his plans, and one standing against God and his plans. But see, even through gruesome and hopeless circumstances like this, God still accomplishes his purposes. So I want to go back to the question I asked at the very beginning. How do I trust God in confusing times? I want to suggest three responses to God's faithfulness. Um, and first of all, and I hope this is apparent, we need a guide in the land of confusion. It's not like we get instantaneously lifted out of this world when we become Christians. No, we've got to live in this world as Christians. And we can't live in this world as Christians and know what we're supposed to do unless we have a guide. So how do we get guided through this land? First of all, and I hope again this is obvious, first of all, we trust God because he's faithful. We trust God because he's faithful. And his word is the authoritative truth in our lives. There was a, an article that appeared in the Washington Post. This was back in April 2013. It ran a story called The Collapse of Entitlement. And it ran this, it was actually a very preachable article. Uh, and it said there that the definition of entitlement is that we expected all social problems to be solved. We expected business cycles, economic insecurity, poverty and racism to end. We expected almost limitless personal freedom and self-fulfillment. The, the article goes on to say that sadly, millions of Americans played by the rules, work hard and you'll achieve the American dream, and now they're in distress. The author says there's some impressive statistics about this collapse of entitlement, and it dismantled some unrealistic expectations we've built around our lives like big corporations will take care of you, or that the government could fix our economy, or that lifestyle choices about marriage and cohabitation and divorce would, quote, expand individual freedom without inflicting adverse social consequences. The writer of this article, who to my knowledge is not a Christian, says, wrong. Family breakdown is deep in poverty and worsen children's prospects. See, the culture has not been able to deliver a working formula for living. As a matter of fact, they've made it completely worse. And it's continuing to get worse. Fortunately, the New Testament was never written to a group of people who thought they'd be living in a culture friendly to Christianity. It was written to a group of people that were going to be facing just the opposite. And it's getting more and more that way. I love what the Apostle Paul says, though, uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. 
So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, we trust God that this is what's going to come. Even though this is a confusing time, what is coming is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, we can trust God because he's faithful to do what he says he's going to do. And for the Christian, the way, the truth, is a person named Jesus Christ. And then secondly, the second response is we fear God also because he's faithful. We fear God because he's faithful. We fear God and God alone. See, David was able to be successful against this giant because he didn't fear that giant as much as he feared the God. So much so that he would say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I don't care how tall he is. I don't care how scary he is. God is with us. And we are to fear God and God alone. And Jesus did not mix words when he was preparing his disciples to send them out. And he knew they would face torture and death and adversity. So what did he say to them? This is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is confusing about the times that we live in? Because I've wondered, is it actually really that confusing? Or is it just taking more and more courage to be a Christian in the land that we're living in? I was listening to a news story yesterday. Caitlyn Jenner, as he calls himself now, is going to be running for governor. And the news agency was all too happy to keep referring to him as she. She, she. He's not a she. He's a man, and a man is a he. But that's the kind of cultural pressure that Christians are going to be under in the time that we're living in. And we cannot start compromising truth because of the mob. Are we going to fear God or are we going to fear the mob? Are we going to fear God or are we going to fear the employer? Are we going to fear God or are we going to fear the government in this? Because we have got to take a stand for truth. Yes, I'll call anyone by the first name they give me. I don't care if it's masculine or feminine. Are we prepared to start taking care of our brothers and sisters in Christ when they start losing their jobs if they're unwilling to succumb to this kind of pressure? I'm praying for many of you. As I was prepping this sermon, I know if you're in the school system, you're, you're facing enormous pressure right now. And in some jobs, this is not an easy time. Now, unless I was absolutely cornered to call someone by a preferred gender pronoun, I wouldn't just share my opinion or, or, or view on that. If I was cornered, I hope I would have the courage to say, I'm sorry, I can't call a man she. I'm praying for all of us to have the courage not to participate in that lie. Again, stick with first names, but truth is truth. When we don't fear God and trust in his care and providence, when we start taking charge of our own circumstances, this is when things end badly. There's a quote by Oswald Chambers. He said, 
I think I've got it here. I've got it written here. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I'll say that again. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. When you fear God alone, when you realize he's the one that controls life after death, he controls eternity, that this is a short life that we're called to be a living sacrifice. And daily we've got to crawl back on that altar. And then finally, proclaim Christ because he is faithful. Proclaim Christ because he's faithful. Share the good news that you have. Share the freedom that you have in Christ. Give someone else the hope that we have as Christians, that we can endure a short life of momentary affliction because of the, it is incomparable to the eternal weight of glory that stands ahead. So in closing, God clears confusion as we trust, fear, proclaim him. God will clear confusion as we trust in him alone, fear him alone, and make him known. There's going to be times when we find it difficult to understand why God allows one of our loved ones to endure agonies. And it's okay to cry out and ask God to, to see if there's a plan B. And sometimes there is. But if there's not, remember this word, rather this sentence from the psalmist. And it's also the example of Jesus. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Please pray with me. God, I pray that you would give us courage and strength. God, as we face persecution, perhaps in ways we have not felt before, God, I pray that we would have wisdom and that we would be in community with one another, loving each other well like you've commanded us to do, strengthening each other, encouraging each other, giving each other heart, Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us the way to living a life that was forfeit to the will of your Father, knowing that he knew what was best. And I pray that we would all live daily in the light of the gospel, the good news, that you have gotten rid of all of our guilt and you took the punishment for our sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.